And we're going to look this morning at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now the Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on this passage, in one of his nine or so sermons on this passage, tells a really profound story that captures the essence of what the Apostle Paul is trying to say in this section. He tells the story about a slave after emancipation in America, and that slave had made his way up across the Mason-Dixon line into the north. He was free, and, and as he lived as a freed man, one day he saw his former master on the street, and his heart sort of sunk within him, and his former master looked at him and he said, Come here, boy. And that slave began to go to his master... And then he stopped and realized, I don't have to go to him. He has no dominion over me. And he turned around and he walked the other way. And Lloyd-Jones says that, that account captures so well in illustrative form what the Apostle Paul is trying to now say in this section when he deals with the issue of the believer and the reign of sin over the unbeliever, and now the reign of God over the believer in Christ by grace. Now, I've noted already that the apostle is connecting what is said here in this chapter to what goes before. It's not always evident or easy, but there is a very straightforward clue there in verse 1, where the apostle says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, if you'll look back at uh, verse 20, the apostle said, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And we saw last Lord's Day that because the work of the last Adam is so much greater than the work of the first Adam, and it's all based on the grace of God, it's unmerited, it can't be earned, we don't work for it, God doesn't give it to us because we've learned to do well enough, but freely as a gift from Christ, and because what Jesus does is so much greater in justifying many by his one act of righteousness, the implication is that where our sin abounded, the multitude of our sins, God's grace superabounded. And you can understand that there would be some who heard that and they would object to that. They would raise objections. Paul, by the way, when he asks questions in this letter, is almost certainly objecting to some, whether real or hypothetical, objections. It's, it's probable, based on the language of this section, that Paul is speaking to those within this congregation who maybe have said to him, well, we hear you saying that we are fully and freely justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have a right standing. We are forever righteous. God's grace superabounds where our sin abounded. And that means that you're saying we ought to just sin as much as we can to see God's grace abound all the more. It may also be that the apostle is wrestling with legalists. The, the former group would be antinomians, no law, let's sin as much as we can so that we show how great God's grace is. By the way, there are real people who couch that in very sophisticated ways, even in our day, that make you think it's good to sin because the more we sin, the more we know God's grace. That is a theological error of the greatest order. The opposite is legalism. And you could expect that there would be some as there were in the day of the Reformation when the Roman Catholic Church said to Martin Luther and to John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Bucer and the Magisterial and, and other re reformers, well, what you're saying is going to lead to lawlessness if what you're saying is true. If justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from anything we do, you're saying we don't have to have any good works or holiness something which the reformers adamantly denied. In fact, one of the great contributions of John Calvin in the Reformation is what theologians have called his emphasis on the duplex gratia, the twofold grace, the grace of justification and the grace of sanctification, that when God gives grace to his people in salvation, he never gives one of those blessings without also giving the other. Those that he justifies, he also will sanctify. They, they are distinct, but they are inseparable blessings. And the Apostle Paul is really trying to connect those two things here in Romans 6. He is, he is now moving in a natural way from the doctrine of justification by faith alone to the doctrine of sanctification. Now, lest I confuse you, you could cut out Romans 6.1 all the way down to the end of chapter 7, and you could connect that great verse in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, to the end of chapter 5. Because what Paul does here in chapter 6 and 7 is he, he deviates from his main argument. He goes to answer these questions, and then he picks back up in chapter 8 verse 1. And he connects it back to what he said in chapter 5. Now, there's a sense, I'll say this before we look at this, 
in any detail, there is a very real sense in which the apostle is introducing here the beginning of what uh, we'll see is a focus on sanctification in chapters 6, 7, and 8. If you want to get a robust understanding of the doctrine of sanctification, how God actually makes his people holy, how we actually become um, those that pursue righteousness in our lives, there are, there are all these different sides and angles. Um, there's a great danger for people to try to reduce everything to, to one aspect. I've seen this in my short time as a pastor. Um, I've seen many ministers, even in Reformed churches, trying to reduce the doctrine of sanctification down to an atomistic statement, usually out of uh, Romans 8, verse 4. If we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live, and, and they will reduce the whole of sanctification down to the practice of mortification. It is not the whole of sanctification. And if we jump there and we say, okay, I've got to put sin to death, and we don't get this... We are making a huge misstep. And if we bypass chapter 7, that indwelling sin and the battle between the remaining corruption, and we jump right to Romans 8, if we put it to death by the Spirit, we'll live, and we forget that there's still a failing and a victory process and a warfare, we are making a huge misstep. We need the full-orbed doctrine. Well, this morning I want us to consider... What has often, in the the last hundred years, been called a focus on definitive sanctification. Paul is going to talk about the fountainhead of sanctification, the beginning of it. How, How can I put to death sin in my life? How has Christ freed me from the dominion and the reign of sin? Um, If you were here last week, you'll remember that there were those rival reigns. Death reigning unto condemnation in Adam. Life reigning through righteousness unto life in Christ. And Paul is picking up on the idea of the the reign, the reign of Christ. Now, not for justification, but in the believer's life. To sanctify uh, believers. And so I want us to notice this morning just four things as we walk through these 14 verses. First, the proposition, and then the exposition, the application, and the implications. The proposition, the exposition, the application, and the implications. Well, as Paul comes to set out the proposition, he is definitively telling believers that they are no longer dead in sins. You'll remember, this is Paul, who is everywhere reminding believers what they were. In Ephesians 2, you were dead in sins and trespasses. Um, There was nothing we could do to help ourselves out of that condition. We We were without any strength. All we do before we're in Christ is sin, everything. Our best works are tainted with, with filthy, selfish motives. Every single thing. We were dead in sins and trespasses. But what Paul is saying here is that once we are united to Christ, we are no longer dead in sins. We are dead to sin. Don't miss that. We are no longer dead in sins. We are dead to sin, to the power of sin. Um, notice that Paul wants to set out that proposition by answering that Great question in verse 1 there in verse 2 with an emphatic by no means. 
how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, the proposition that Paul is sending out is that if you have been justified by Christ, if you are united to Jesus by faith alone, that you have died to sin's power and that, that you are not a slave to sin. You are, sin is not your master anymore. It can't make you do those things that you did before you were in Christ. Before we were in Christ, all we could do was sin. And Paul is answering that question by essentially saying, how is it even possible that we would continue in sin if we've died to Christ? Now, let me say this this morning. He's not saying believers will never sin. We know that in our experience. We know it in those many failings and those times where we're grieved. By the way, we, one of the marks we know we're a true believer is that we are grieved when we've sinned. And we know that the Apostle James says we all stumble in many ways. And that the Apostle John in 1 John says if anyone says he does not sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. We know it in our experience. And in this life, we are not going to be sinless. And yet we are freed from sin's dominion so that we do not have to obey it in its, in its demands. And it's saying to us, come here, I want you to do what I want you to do. Um, Paul really emphasizes this there at the beginning of verse 3, and he'll do this again in verse 16. There's twice in this chapter he'll say, do you not know? Do you not know this? Um, Don't you know that you have died to sin's power if you're in union with Jesus? And that you don't have to sin. Now that is good news. That's part of the good news. It's the duplex gratia, the twofold graces. We're not only justified, we are set free. We are set free to actually do the things that are pleasing to God. And that is part of the good news. That's part of the gospel. Um, We don't need people telling us that we're just going to fail all the time in every way. We need people telling us that we don't have to sin if we're in Christ because that sin no longer has dominion over us. Listen to this. John Calvin goes even further. Calvin says, Nothing can be more inconsistent than that the grace of Christ, the repairer of our righteousness, should nourish our vices. Nothing is more inconsistent than that the grace of Christ, the repairer of our righteousness, should nourish our vices. Jesus didn't die to leave us in our sins. Jesus died to to deal with the guilt of our sin, and he also died to break the power of sin. You know, there have been many great hymns that have captured this. I was thinking this week how, how we love to sing those words of John Wesley, my chains fell, fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Or those words of Augustus Toplady, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me of its guilt and power. Um, the Apostle John captures that for us so well in First John when he says, if, if we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. He's he's faithful to, to forgive us of the guilt and to cleanse us of the pollution of our sins. This is marvelous. That means the cross is so much more, so much greater than just Jesus died to forgive me. I'm forgiven, and that's all that matters. It is the the chief thing that matters. But but what Jesus did on the cross was so much greater. Um, I was reminded that Jesus really accomplished a threefold victory on the cross. He, He dealt with the guilt of sin. He dealt with the power of sin. And he dealt with the dominion of the evil one. That's that's why the cross is everything in the Christian life. If I'm lacking power, if I'm giving in to sin, then I've I've misunderstood or I've taken my eyes off of what Christ has done for me. I've failed to understand. Paul will actually come to the end of the section and he'll essentially say, in answer to that question, do you not know? He'll say, now consider yourself, reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin. That where you've forgotten this, remind yourself of it. Um, It has been often noted, and John Owen uh, chiefly noted this in his book on communion with God, that the problem with the Christian life is not that I lack effort so much as I don't understand my privileges. It's not that I don't lack effort. It's not that I didn't try hard enough. It's not that I didn't do more. It's not that I wasn't more resolved. It's that so often I've forgotten what is already true about me in Christ, that I've died with him, that I've been buried with him, that I've been raised with him. Now, Paul is moving from the proposition that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we have died to sin and its dominion, that he goes into that exposition there in verses 5 through 10. Now, Um, the doctrine of union with Christ is really everything. The Apostle Paul will mention union with Christ some 150 times in the New Testament. It's his favorite way of explaining what it means to be a Christian. He he says, "I've, I've died with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. He'll speak of being in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus. Um, thinking of ourselves that way, that I am... I am by faith united to the Lord Jesus, inseparably, uh, immutably, um, unbreakably united to Christ is everything. He is the source of the Christian's life. Jesus uses that figure when he wants to explain uh, the union that we have with him. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. Every branch in me that abides in me bears fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Uh, The doctrine of union with Christ makes all the blessings that Paul is talking about, like justification and sanctification, to come to us by faith. There was an account of the great uh, Princetonian theologian of the 19th century, A.A. Hodge. Um, He was on his deathbed, and a friend was reading to him those words out of Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor anything can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's the old authorized version, the King James, which is in Christ Jesus. In the Greek, the words which in aren't there. It really should say the love of God in 
Christ Jesus. And Hodge knew that, and on his deathbed, he, he corrected the translation. You see, Charles Hodge, it's been said, I'm sorry, A.A. A. Hodge didn't want a preposition between himself and the Lord Jesus. He didn't want a preposition between him and Christ. He understood the value of union with Christ. Uh, John Gerstner uh, preached a sermon on union with Christ 30, 40 years ago, and he was noting that great old uh, spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And, And Gerstner said, you bet you were there. You were nailed to that tree with him. That's what Paul's going to say here. You were nailed to the cross with him. Your old man was crucified with him. It wasn't just something done outside of you. It was something that happened to you. When he died, you died, Paul says. In time and space. Not, not in your experience until you're united to him by faith, but, but you were represented by him. Our union with Christ goes all the way back into eternity. Paul will say in Ephesians 2 that God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. That means in God's electing grace, when he chose his people from all eternity, he chose them to be in union with Christ. And that means when Jesus came and from the moment he was conceived, he was in union with all those he was going to die for. Every step he took, those that he would redeem, those chosen in him, were in union with him. He was only here to do it for us. That's amazing. That radically changes the way we understand the Christian message. That there was nothing we did to help perfect what Christ did. In fact, he did it all every single breath he took, every sinless act, every step he took on the way to the cross he did for those who were in him. As our representative, and Paul is going to focus especially on how our union with Christ is most pointedly, efficaciously um, uh, put into effect in his death on the cross. You'll notice all the times he appeals to the death of Jesus and to our subsequent death in verse 2. He will say, how can we who died to sin live any longer in it? In verse 3, he says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. In verse 4, buried with him by baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead. Verse 5, united with him in a death like his. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, you died with Christ. Verse 9, being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. And finally, verse 11, consider yourself dead to sin. Now that's a whole lot of focus on death. Because it was in the death of Jesus that we died and our old nature was crucified. This is why Paul can say, I was crucified with Christ. I was crucified with Christ. Um, It's one of the foremost ways we're to think about ourselves. That the old Nick was nailed to the cross. That the power of sin was broken. Now, Paul is going to go into 
quite some depth in explaining how this happens in redemptive history, how it happened in time when, when Jesus was nailed to the tree. What actually happened that, that affected this that would impact you 2,000-some years later? Well, notice that there in verse 10 again, notice this. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin. And then notice the end of verse 9. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, what is Paul saying? How, how did... How did Christ die a death to sin so that sin no longer has dominion over him? When did sin have dominion over Jesus? Because I thought Jesus was sinless. The, the writer of Hebrews says he was tempted in all points, even as we are, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews says that such a high priest was necessary for us, that he is holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Even the demons said... What have you to do with us, the Holy One of God? The, 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 the thief on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. And the centurion at the foot of the cross called him that righteous. Surely this was a righteous man. Jesus himself alluded to his sinlessness when he said, the one that comes from God speaks what he heard from him, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Everywhere. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, he, God the Father, made him... God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So how can Paul now say, the death he died, he died to sin, and sin and death no longer have dominion over him? Well, very simply, it's the doctrine of the imputation of our sin to Christ. The Lord Jesus wasn't dying for himself. Our sins were imputed to him on the cross, the sins of all those for whom he would die, all those sins, I mean, in one very real sense, Jesus was constituted the greatest sinner that ever walked the face of the earth. I've told you that story that when he is baptized in the Jordan, Jeff Thomas says, you can see Jesus standing in line, coming to a baptism of repentance that he had no need for. And there he is, waiting to be baptized at the Jordan by John, and there's a murderer, and there's an adulterer, there's a thief, there's a pedophile. There's a gossip, there's a slanderer, and there's Jesus. And he steps into that polluted water as John is symbolically cleansing the people, symbolically washing their sins, and Jesus steps into the filthy water representing the washing away of sins, and all those sins are poured over his head by that polluted water. That's what happens at the cross. Our sins are poured over the holy head of Jesus. And he is, in a sense, under the power and dominion of what sin deserves, under the judgment of God, under the powers, the principalities and powers, the forces of darkness. He is putting himself in our place, under that dominion. And notice what Paul says. He says that once he died, he died to sin and death no longer has dominion over him. When he came out of the grave, he showed that he broke the power and the dominion of sin and death. That's why we can hope in our resurrection unto eternal life on the last day, because Jesus has broken the power of sin and death. It's been a radical breach in time and space. Um, that is so comforting, because if I'm in Christ by faith alone, and all that's true of him becomes true of me. All that he did 
and the benefits that accrue from it become mine. You know, Paul throws union with Christ under several figures, but really the most wonderful one is that of a a husband and a wife in Ephesians 5, that the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. All that's true of him becomes true for us. That's, That's the picture of what union with him has accomplished through his death and resurrection. Um, essentially what Paul is going to do moving into the application is say, if all that is true, then when we are tempted to sin, we don't have to sin because Jesus died to sin's power and there was a radical breach with its dominion over us. Whenever those temptations say, come here, boy, come here, girl, we can turn and walk the other way because there's power in the death of Christ. What a difference this would make if we would remember it. And so notice what Paul does when he goes to apply this in verse 11. Notice this. This is the only application up till this point. In fact, listen very carefully. I think I'm right in saying this. I think it's the only application up till this point in the entire letter of Romans. It has been all exposition all explanation of the glories of what God has done and accomplished. And now Paul says, now, reckon yourself, count yourself to be dead in sins and alive to God in our Lord Jesus. Um, 10 to 15 years ago, it became sort of trendy. And by the way, evangelicals love trends. Just beware of trends. But this is one I will hold on to. But it became very trendy to talk about preaching the gospel to yourself. You've got to preach the gospel to yourself. Listen, this is something every morning we should get up and preach to ourselves. Nick, you've died with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Every morning, Paul is saying, preach this to yourself. You know, there's a long history in scripture of believers preaching the gospel and its subsequent truths to themselves. Think of the psalmist in Psalm 42, where he says, Why am I cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? And the same in Psalm 43. And then he says, Hope in God, for I will yet praise him. He's preaching the good news to himself. Hope in God, for I will yet praise him. My God, my my strength. Paul is saying every day we should be remembering, considering, thinking about ourselves in light of what happened to us on the cross. Um... John Murray says this, we are to reckon with and appreciate the facts which already obtained by virtue of union with Christ. The expression dead unto sin implies an abiding state or condition. If you're in Christ, you're dead to sin. That's an abiding state or condition. It's a sphere in which you live. You're dead to sin. An abiding state, Murray says, resultant upon the once-for-all decisive event of having died to sin by union with Christ and the efficacy of his death. What happened to him has an impact on us. Now, here's the reality. The reason we sin more than we do if we're true believers is because we don't reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and in that state and condition as we ought to. The reason we give in to sin far more than we should 
is because we forget these things. I think it was Samuel Johnson who said, the great need of men and women is not to learn more, it's to be reminded of what they already know. That's what Paul is saying, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? And if you don't know that, then every time you're tempted, you're going to succumb to that. Um, This side of sanctification is really the fountainhead. It's the beginning. Um, All of the progressive growth in grace that we long for in our lives, it flows from this. We can't get there before we get here. If there's no radical breach with sin, if we're not under its dominion, then we're we're not ever going to make growth in grace. Now, that radical breach doesn't mean, let me say this again, that you will be sinless. Or if you just walk around, Nick, you're dead to sin, you're dead to sin, you're dead to sin. I'll never sin because I'm sure I'll be sinning by ignoring all of the responsibilities God has put in front of me. And not caring for others. Paul doesn't want you to turn in on yourself. He wants you to live in light of what is true about you. And so he draws out these implications. Now, fourthly, in verses 12 through 14, let's look at this. Finally, notice he says, Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from the dead and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul's saying just as before you were in Christ, you used every faculty, your mind, your affections, your wills, your emotions, your body, every part of you to serve unrighteousness. So now because this is true, the implication is all of you should understand that that you are to present yourselves to God to live for him. Paul has another way of saying this. In 2 Corinthians 5, he will say, uh, one died for all and, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Our great problem is that we live for ourselves. The reason we're not more victorious in Christian living, the reason we're not more faithful in our Christian living, the reason we're not more committed to our Christian lives and worship and and service is because we want to live for ourselves. Notice the way Paul says this. He says, that, that sin reigns before we're converted in our mortal bodies and we obey its, its, its lust, its passions. But notice this. Notice what he says in verse 14. I love this. He brings this to a preemptive close for a moment by saying this, for sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Um, If Paul was saying this to a slave who had not yet been emancipated, it would be cruel if he said, you're no longer under that. That would be cruel. But he's saying it to men and women who have been set free. He's saying, your old master does not have dominion over you. Now, I wonder if Paul doesn't have in mind what the Lord said to Cain all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. Remember that Abel 
offers a sacrifice of faith, bringing a blood offering. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. He knows that. He brings the blood offering. Um, He's accepted as righteous by faith. His brother just brings the grain without the blood because he's self-righteous, and God doesn't accept him. He's downcast. And the Lord says to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, he says, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to rule over you. I wonder if Paul doesn't have that in mind. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to, to show dominion over you. And he says, if you're in Christ, sin will not have dominion over you. You're not under law. You're under grace. You know, when we think of the grace of God, and we heard last week, grace greater than all my sin. What a marvelous thought. There's a very real sense where we can't out-sin the grace of God. But God's grace brings more than just forgiveness, more than just justification. It, It teaches us. We read this this morning. In the assurance of pardon, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You see, God's grace from start to finish does everything for a believer. It leads us in paths of righteousness. Now, I'm going to say this this morning. If you're a Christian, you you should love hearing this because it's true of you. Whether you feel it or not, it's true. If you're not a Christian, you probably hate this, and that's because you're still dead in sins and trespasses, and you have a different master, and you need to be set free. And the only way that happens is by coming to the Lord Jesus and trusting in him. And when you do, you will be united to him by faith, and you will know the benefits of what happened by union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Um, This is... This is the epicenter. This is the first step in us understanding what it means to live for God. Um, I want to leave you with this thought this morning. If you are are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to press on you the, the urgency of doing what Paul says in verse 11 every day of your life. Every morning when we wake up, Nick, you have died to sin's dominion. Paul says, reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the truest thing about you if you're a believer. And then when you're tempted, that you would remind yourself, I don't have to give in to this sin. It has no power over me. It's not my master. I'm not under law. I'm under grace. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for the excellence of these truths. We thank you for the astonishing truth that our Lord Jesus died to sin once and for all. He has broken the power of sin for us that we have been crucified with him, buried with him, and risen with him. Father, would you give us grace to consider ourselves in light of this truth? Every day that we have remaining here in this life, would you give us greater victory over sin, knowing that it 
has no power over us. Lord, would you please call these words to mind and write them deep in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We pray for any here this morning that may not know you, that may have never come to know you, who are still under the dominion of sin, that you would make them to know your justifying grace and that definitive sanctification that comes by grace in Christ. Father in heaven, would you work these things in us and make us to be a people who live as those who have been raised to newness of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.